I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrian Marie Brown, a social justice facilitator, author of Pleasure Activism and Emergent Strategy, and a doula living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. NK, it is so unbelievably exciting to have you on this podcast with us. Thank you. It's good to talk to you again, too. The three of us have been in conversation before. Um, We were remembering that I think it's been over a decade now um, since that fateful Think Galacticon conference in Chicago. Has it been that long? It's been a really long time. We've all, we all have totally new skins. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so we thought we would begin just by asking you to describe a little bit about your journey towards writing science fiction and fantasy. One of the things we were wondering about is... Um, when you really saw yourself as embarking on the journey of becoming a a science fiction and fantasy writer and how did you know that you were brilliant and had something special and unique to offer to these genres? Well, well, thank you. (laughs) Um, uh, the, the, the journey really wasn't so much of a journey as just, uh, where, where I've always kind of been. Um, as a child, I started out reading, um, you know, fairy tales and, uh, you know, mythology and things like that for fun. And science fiction and fantasy were really just kind of more adult versions of the same thing. Um, well, I mean, mythology is, is adult in and of itself. But um, And so I wrote that throughout my childhood and my teen years and my young adulthood. And really, it wasn't until... Um, yeah, it really was not an, I, I never intended to make a career of it. Um, for the, for a very long time, I just kept telling myself that I could not, um, I didn't have a real chance of being able to make a career of it because this is not a field that is welcoming to black women. Um, and I also just didn't think I was that good. Um, and you know, then I hit like 30 and had a little mini midlife crisis and, uh, somewhere in there decided that it was a good idea to start trying to, uh, (laughs) 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 to start trying to, to get published at that point. Mm. Um, that's beautiful. I'm glad you had that midlife crisis. It has benefited all of us. Um, so your work before the Broken Earth trilogy, the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, the Dreamblood series, um, they were in such vibrant sort of otherworldly settings. And this, the Broken Earth trilogy turns Earth into this new territory going down and in. Um, and so it made me wonder, like, did you set out to write an apocalypse story about Earth? Was that like what was, you know, the, was that the first piece that came? Um... What I set out to write was a story of of a personal apocalypse, um, which, uh, you know, it's a character-focused story to me. Um, Everything that's happening with the planet um, in the background is, to me, in the background. It's it's the setting in which it takes place, or the society is is more um, kind of a centered thing to me than the, the, the global issues, literally. Um, But um, so, you know, for me, what it really was about was trying to 
give life to the character um, who popped into my head and sort of exploring what was going on with her. Yeah, and I, I, I really appreciate how much it feels like in, in the Broken Earth trilogy, how much you can really feel that what's happening in the earth is reflective of what's happening inside the body of this main character and vice versa, that there's like a, a deep relationship between her emotional life and the emotional life of the planet itself. Um, Autumn, I just realized I wanted to say something, which is if anyone's listening to this, as <laughs> when people listen to this, um, we're going to go in the spoiler zone. And I just, I don't want anyone to feel like, I'm like, I should be the last person on earth that finally got around to reading this. Um, but if you haven't read it yet, um, I would say you, you might want to just pause and come back once you've actually read it. Cause I really want us to have permission to dive all the way in. So just saying, okay. You know, one of the things that Adrian and I both love about your writing generally is that you give us books that are so riveting, they're really page turners, but also have incredible depth to them. Um, that there's, you know, in Broken Earth Trilogy, you're dealing with a character who's living through the loss of a child, the loss of her home, um, the loss of multiple versions of herself. Um in addition to the story feeling like this really intense adventure narrative where there's like literal physical journey that's happening and dangers that she's encountering and all of those things. Um, and one of the things that we were wondering inside of that is, you know, both in terms of the Broken Earth trilogy, but also in terms of um, your other major works, wondering how you develop these epic storylines and whether there's a lot of mapping that happens before you actually write the narrative um, or if, the um uh if you know if the character development itself comes first if you can just talk a little bit about your process um uh, it's difficult to talk about my process because it's not a structured thing hmm. um well i mean it's just that's that's i i, I think a lot of people um kind of perceive it as, as a structured thing because there's a lot of structure to the story, but that's just not how it develops um, in my head. Um, you know, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I tell people that um, the, the idea for the story, well, really the idea for the story cohered over many years from a lot of different little experiences. Um, but the precipitating thing for it was a dream that I had. And uh, in the dream, um, there was a woman walking toward me um, who had dreadlocks, um, who looked pissed off. Um, and I was trying to figure out why was she so angry. And she had a mountain floating along behind her. So, you know, I, I basically, and I knew somehow that she was mad at me and that she was mad enough that she was going to throw this mountain at me. Um, and so a lot of it was me trying to understand kind of like, why is she angry? And, and, you know, how has she got a mountain behind her? What the hell? Um, and so on. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So at that point, I, I kind of started developing the idea of, of trying to understand why this woman was so angry that she really wanted to reshape the world, destroy the world, throw a mountain around, that kind of thing. Um, and then uh, uh, there was a... 
there is a kind of world building process that I that I do um, that I actually give workshops on. That's usually a two hour workshop in and of itself. Um, where, oh. yeah, want to take that? <laughs> okay, um, but yeah, in the in the workshop, I come up with the setting, the physical setting, and so. Um, that's when I kind of put together, um, using that process is how I kind of put together the idea of the stillness as this, um, this, uh, Pangea type continent, uh, that has been other continents before and will eventually be one again, um, where it's extra tectonically active, um, and, you know, kind of where you had disasters happening all the time. What I wanted was a, a, a world that was a metaphor for um, the, the, the experiences that Essen has, um, for mm. the experiences of, of uh, you know, a member of an oppressed group whose world is destroyed again and again, mm. um, whose family is destroyed again and again, whose personality is even broken down again and again. Um, and to me, you know, creating the stillness was, was a secondary thing to creating the character. Mm. So I hope that explains mm-hmm. it. I love it. Um, there's one thing I was thinking as you were speaking that, uh, so I listened to it as the audiobook, um, which I haven't done a ton of audiobook listening, but with this one, there, it made certain things stand out. And there's so much created terminology that you use in this. And I was really interested about the process of creating new terminology. And one thing I was really interested in is the term erogeny mm. as the act of reaching into the earth and starting to shapeshift things and how it, it's such a visceral and personal and, and almost like an internal act that's happening that's having this external um, impact. Mm. And then the word, every time I heard it, I thought of erogenous mm-hmm. and like the erogenous zones, the the idea of being activated and turned on. And I wondered if that was an intentional language thing or just <laughs> another kind of magical language thing that happened. Um, I think the similarity to erogeny um, was was coincidental because I was using um, a seismological term, uh, orogenesis or orogeny uh-huh. um, in the real world is a scientific term for uh, the process over millions of years by which mountains are pushed up um, or worn down. Oh. Yeah. So it's the process of mountain Amazing. formation. Um, and so You're like, it's I, actual science. Yes, I, I, <laughs> science is one of my favorite things, but I stole from science. Um, so if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I stole the, the, the term from science and then turned it into effectively a magical term. But um, it really does kind of still mean the same thing. Mountains are created over the course of the story, uh, in some cases, mm-hmm. by yes. this power. Um, so that was really where that came from. Um, and a lot of the other created terms in the story are meant to um, sort of twist science from our world a little bit or or yeah. create a pseudoscientific flavor for that world. Um, like, for example, uh, Sessing and Sasuna. Um, mm. My thought about these people was that um, they're not really super different from human beings. It's just that, you know, they're, they're human beings who have... Um, an innate ability to sense when earthquakes are coming. Um, and there are life forms in our world that do this, that have the ability to sense, uh, you know, kind of seismic activity and that kind of thing. Um, so I just kind of extrapolated from that and was like, well, what if people could do that? 
Um, and I, mm. I thought that this would be a sixth sense and we would give it a name the same way that we give sight and hearing and uh, so forth names. Um, and so Sesuna was the, the name for that. And then Sessing became the sense um, and so on. And then, of course, then I had to come up with organs that, you know, were used to make Could this. do that. <laughs> yeah, and that's the sesapine, and I just used a Greek root because that, you know, Americans in particular think anything with, like, a Greek or a Latin root is automatically scientific. Um, so <laughs> that, was, that was really it. So this is a question I, I held a lot while I was reading, and but I, I'm asking it with some trepidation, and I'm totally mm-hmm. like, you can be like, no, fuck off if you want to. <laughs> but at a certain point, okay. in the, like I'm totally open to it, okay? But at a certain point in the text, I really felt like there was an Octavia Butler love note happening at some um, level. Hmm. And I was like trying to figure out like, oh, what's happening? And it, was, it felt like there were these notable elements from her work Mm -hmm. that were like woven into this work, but in totally wildly different ways. Hmm. Um, So I'm thinking about the, you know, just being the long journey by foot, losing an arm in a magical way, Hmm. the meticulous runny sack, like one person harnessing the power of a network. Hmm. Um, But I also was like, these are elements that show up, you know, they're elements that show up and get remixed in in a lot of texts. And I felt like what you were doing with it was really new. Hmm. But I wondered if there was also any of that threading throughout um, in an intentional way, or if it's just one of the things that happens in the magical realm of, of black women writing science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, it's difficult to say, you know, to what degree this was a conscious emulation. Uh Um, I don't know that it really was. Um, You know, now that you're pointing out things like the network and the arm, I, I hadn't noticed that until you just said that. Um, so yes, but I mean, at the same time, I've read Octavia Butler's works. I'm sure that they influence me on some level. Everything I've ever read, everything I've ever experienced tends to syncretize and, and, and affect my ideas and the things that I come up with. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, but I, (laughs) I don't know how I could articulate that. No, that's great. It's something I remember seeing, um, Sophia Samatar talking about like how to, be in right relationship with the fact that like we are readers and we take in content and it remixes and comes back out. And then I think then the, the art of it is figuring out how your remix is so, I mean, it's so shockingly original. There were so many scenes in it where I was just like, I've never considered this. I've never considered, you know, like I thought about traveling through the earth to another part of earth, like when I was a kid, but I never really thought about like, what are the layers of going through the earth going to be like? And I love that you took us on that journey multiple times um, and in multiple ways. And it just felt fresh. Like it was like, oh, right, we live on it. There's a whole galaxy beneath our feet in a way. Um, so anyway, I'm gushing, but. Autumn, do you have another question? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and this question is, a, is uh, I guess, more of a tender one, but also wanting to understand more about the variety of experiences that influenced your work. And I remember when I finished reading the trilogy that I... I, I read the acknowledgments of in depth of each of <laughs> your books. Um, and I remember noting uh, that your mother passed away while you were writing yeah. um, the trilogy, which I was so sorry to hear. Um, and of course, grief and loss um, feel like in a way 
um, as as a mother reading the stories, I I felt that um, Asun's grief was like uh, its own character in the book, in addition to her. Um, and I was wondering if you would, and again, another place where you can be like, fuck off, I'm not talking about this. But um, I was wondering if you would be willing to talk a little bit about how your grieving process informed your development of the character and your work on the story. Um, because it it is one of, to me, it's one of the most powerful texts of grief inside of systemic oppression that I've ever read and um, very much inspired my own work. Um, I mean, some of this is, is not really comfortable for me to talk about because, you know, my mom only passed away less than two years ago, so I'm still actually kind of working through that. Um, mm. And, um, you know, all I can really say is that I think that it probably on some level... Um, she she was sick and she had a number of health issues before she died. Um, and it was during the third book that she passed away while I was working on the third book. But uh, for the first two books, mm. I probably on some level um, was processing a growing awareness that that was what was happening. Um, so, I mean, I, I suspect that that's probably what was what was informing it on some level. And then on, mm. on other levels, it wasn't that personal. It was more... Um, you know, this is the, one of the inspirations for the story is, uh, the, the story of Margaret Garner, um, which you've probably seen in other, seen me mention in other interviews. Um, and, and that story has fascinated me and probably fascinates a lot of people because you cannot help trying to process. I I am, I am not a mother myself, but you know, I, I love people. I know how that feels. Um, it's difficult to imagine loving someone so much that you were actually willing to kill them rather than see them suffer. Um, and, mm. and and that is, well, it was difficult for me to imagine. And I think kind of trying to put myself in that headspace um, is, is some of what you were saying, less grief than, than love on a level that... Um, is willing to alleviate suffering by any means necessary, if that makes sense. Wow, yes. That's incredible. I feel like you pack so much emotional work into the pages. Um, I felt that Margaret Garner referenced so powerfully and and really handled well um, Mm -hmm. that she's walking with so much grief and shame um, throughout so much of the story. Like I feel like I, I rarely have seen a hero or a central character who is so much like, you know, (laughs) is just really like, I really am not a good person um, Mm. as the internal narrative. But Mm -hmm. then you then show us things that are so awe inspiring and so magic um, Mm -hmm. that in this ash covered landscape, you know, the beauty and the love really stand out and this podcast is really about the many complex ways that humans have survived apocalypse. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's like that every single human that's alive on the planet is of a lineage that has survived apocalypse in some way. Mm-hmm. And it feels like with your text, you're positing that these moments of beauty and love and passion are part of the ways that Essence survives and part of the ways maybe that we survive. And I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about how you see the role of beauty and intimacy and pleasure um, in your work? Um, 
you know, it's a combination of, you know, Essen um, in her various incarnations and then after the first book as she um, kind of proceeds through all the stuff that she's dealing with, she's still a person. Um, and I just wanted to show her as someone who, you know, she, she does horrific things over the course of the story, sometimes accidentally, sometimes intentionally. Um, but, you know, I never wanted her to try and, um, I never wanted to try and depict her as a hero or a villain so much as a, a three-dimensional human being, um, who has relationships, who has connections, who has a need for connection, um, with other people, who suffers loneliness, um, you know, all of these things, um, and who is herself worthy of love, even if she is, um, you know, kind of a mass murderer, which she is. Um, but you know, she, she does this, um, from this place of, you know, this is the, the, the struggle that she's kind of been through throughout her life. Um, she's been pushed again and again to be violent, to be, uh, the monster that people expect her to be, um, to the degree that she has internalized that. And it's not her nature, but you know, it's, it's, it's who she's had to become. But I mean, she's still herself. And, and I wanted that to show in various ways. Um, and so, you know, in things like her, her choice to settle down with uh, the, the father of her children, Jija, um, and, you know, form a nice, you know, sort of straightforward vanilla relationship with him um, in, well, I mean, you know, in, in comparison with the the sort of love of her life, um, which is that polyamorous relationship with both um, Alabaster and uh, Inan. Um, <laughs> um, and that's the relationship of her heart, but, you know, she lost that. And she, maybe on some level she, she sought something boring because it would be safe. Yes. And then this other... Um, I'm blanking on the character's name now, the one who comes out of the egg, Hoa. <laughs> um, there's this other sort of love relationship, but a, a very strange type of love relationship that she forms as well. It feels like there's a, a you know, I really felt that in the, I mean, across all of the relationships in the novel that you were really exploring the different ways that love manifests um, mm. And how confusing mm -hmm. it can be, the way that love can manifest between two people whose attraction to each other is both undeniable and on some level cosmic and <laughs> determined in some other way that's not necessarily about choice. Um, and in fact, there was a lot I felt like you were exploring uh, about, you know, the role of choice or lack of choice inside of these experiences. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the, a lot of what I was trying to explore was just survival through oppression, through the, the, the social apocalypses or the personal apocalypses that come from, um, you know, dealing with a lot of these, these, uh, systemic and, and other kinds of harm, um, and, you know, Hoa is processing that, too, as it becomes clear in the third book. Um, and Hoa is aware of the fact that, you know, he's basically kind of 
projecting um, the woman that he loved back in the day, well, like back in the 40,000 years before day. Um, but, um, you know, he's aware of the fact that he's basically kind of projecting and treating Essen like this woman that he could not save way back then. Um, and he acknowledges that. Um, and he knows that it's not entirely fair to put that on her. But at the same time, he tries to process her as who she is over the course of the the trilogy since he's the narrator for it um you know and Essen is is not initially you know she's not initially aware of the fact that he loves her or really understanding that he loves her um and that's a thing that becomes you know kind of clear to her over over time so that's basically what's happening is is you know over the course of time she's She's processing her own ability to love. I um, mean, even at the end with uh, Lerna um, and how she, um, you know, kind of gradually starts to realize, well, wait, he's he's had a thing for me all this time, you know, and I'm lonely and he's, he's a good guy, you know, there's no reason not to. Um, but at the same time, it's not really... It's, it's less love than the need for closeness, the, the need for in- intimacy in that case, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. I really loved that. I loved that you didn't go in the direction of like an easy romance with Lerna, that it was like, just because you're there and even though I'm lonely and even though it would be easy to kind of slip into that, there's such an authentic like you know, it just feels like I've been through it. I've, I've lost, I've been through heartbreaks. I know what it's like, and I don't need to put you through that. Like, this is the truth of what we can actually engage in, which I thought was incredible. Um, thank you. Yeah. I really appreciated it. Yeah. You're watching the character make a choice from a place of integrity, integrity that she's earned over a lot of time. So that was really powerful. Yeah. Well, and it's so incredible to be like, oh, we've watched her really mature, you know, like we've gotten to see her and see her from the very beginning. Um, And then, you know, also be moved by watching her daughter, Nasun, um, not in that emotional maturity, right? Like watching someone who's like, I'm 10 years old and I'm going to, you know, I don't mind if my relationships destroy others or if my emotions destroy others because I'm 10 and I'm not necessarily thinking at that level yet. Um, and then getting that juxtaposed against Essun's maturity um, and knowing that, uh, anyway, there's so much there. But <laughs> one of the one of the questions I had, because I felt kind of in love with Hoa. Oh. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I was like so excited when you, I did. <laughs> I was like, yes, Hoa. <laughs> like, um I mean, just this character being so ancient mm. and so wise, but then choosing to enter Essun's life as a child, you know, basically as someone who was, who she would care for and being like, that's an intentional choice. Um, but then also being of the stone eaters. And, and you know, I, I just felt like there was a way that becoming stone was presented as um, moving away from a lot of human weaknesses or moving out of human weaknesses um, like that eventually you live so long, but then you still have Hoa with longing. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that, that like is longing the thing that keeps us alive, um, even when all the other aspects of humanity seem to have gone away? Um, I had not intended for it to be longing so much as as the ability to connect to others. Hmm. Um, uh-huh. I meant for Hoa uh-huh. 
Yeah, I kind of meant for Hoa to be contrasted with uh, Gray Man slash his other many names. Yes. Um, <laughs> and and you know, at one point Hoa was like Gray Man. He was full of rage. Um, yes. He he wanted to cause nothing but destruction and suffering, and that's how yeah. he ended up in that uh, crystal at the beginning of the story. And I right. have not written that story, but uh, I might one day. Ooh, um, NK. Yay. Well, <laughs> don't but, I mean, tease he, he us. Says at one point, <laughs> well, I don't know. I haven't decided. But um, you know, Essen asked him at one point, "How the hell did you end up stuck in a, an obelisk?" And he's yeah. like, "I pissed off the wrong Raga." Um, and, you know, you see Essen do this to other stone eaters over the course of the story. So that, that implies what happened there. Um, but that said, I mean, what it, what it really kind of comes down to is that Hoa, um, partly because he spent God knows how many years stuck in an obelisk, um, had a lot of time to reflect. <laughs> um, he had some time to think about his life choices and, um, come to a better place with them. Um, and he, his, throughout the story, throughout the trilogy, you kind of see him connecting also with his own past. You see him meet again, um, his, his siblings from, uh, back when he was a tuner, well, inhuman. Um, and so, you know, the, the three kind of principal stone eaters that you see over the course of the story are that same family still wrestling with the, the issues that they did back in those days. I think of them as family, but I also think of them as, you know, people who suffered together or as a race of their own, I guess. So, um, you know, the, there is love between them. They've literally lived so long that they've forgotten each other multiple times and had to reintroduce each other. Um and so that was really what I was just kind of trying to wrestle with is how does love continue, the ability to love continue to function given that length of time, given that these are people, these are human beings, they are not uh, cognitively different from us in any way. Um, so how do you wrestle with just that sheer length of time? And, and that was what I was exploring. Excellent. Fascinating. Um, we want to, ask you about the earth again um <laughs> you know so much of of science fiction is you know engaging the question if if this goes on or you know if if the current status quo continues you know what is the what is the future result and um in in terms of the way that you um created the stillness as this um, that, as you described it, that this Pangea-like continent that has all this tectonic instability, um, and that really, you know, that the the people who live on the continent really have to um, see the Earth as this ex uh, this force that can act against them. Um, and we were wondering if if you feel like you know, living in the current conditions that we live in on planet Earth, if you feel like the Earth turning against us is inevitable, um, or if there's some other possible future for human life. Um, I mean, I don't, it was, it was a, it was a mythological decision to make, um, the Earth aware and intentional in, in this story. Um, and, you know, kind of in, in the real world, I don't perceive the earth as, as being that intentional. I think the earth is 
the earth. Um, I, what I did want to kind of process was the fact that um, human incompetence, uh, selfishness, whatever you want to call it, was the, the cause of the disaster. Excuse me. Um, and the nature of the disaster is, is you know, entirely different in uh, the book. Um, you know, the, basically they actually had managed to find a place of environmental equilibrium um, back in the past during the era of Silanagist. Um, they actually had a, a green solar punk world um, and it was quite beautiful. Um, but, you know, then they still screwed it up. So, um, you know, human hubris is really what I was more interested in less than in an environmental uh, metaphor. Um, because my feeling is kind of like, you know, if you're selfish enough, if you're um, self-absorbed enough, you're still going to do damage no matter what form that takes. You're going to you're going to harm your environment. The the the, the externals are going to eventually reflect the internals. Um, and when you've got a corrupt culture, when you've got a culture that is by nature um, predatory and toxic, that's going to show itself even in a non toxic looking environment. If that makes sense. Um, so really, that was really what it came down to. It was more sort of a metaphorical, I wanted the world to reflect what Solana just really was like. I love that. It makes a ton of sense. And I'd say it's a really good pivot into where we wanted to go with what, what may be our last question. Um, so speaking of human hubris, <laughs> you have <laughs> now won all the awards and really been putting the sad puppies in their kennel. And I'm sure that some of them feel <laughs> that they are experiencing an apocalypse of the white male sci-fi, um, you know, mo monolithic storytelling that they were used mm. to for a long time. So first, I want to ask if there's anything you want to say about that, about, you know, after so many years and so many efforts and so much being someone who has really um, been holding that th those titles and taking those titles one one after another. Um, well, yeah. So first, is there anything you want to say about that? Um, I I have um, kind of like there's a part of me that wants to be just straight up petty and be like, hey, thanks for calling all this attention to my career, which right. allowed me to probably get a lot more scrutiny than I would have. You know, basically it was free advertising. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, but at the same time, you know, for a period of time there, um, I was getting death threats. I had to, mm. you know, tell the, the the campus security at the university where I was working at the time. Um, I had to tell them to kind of institute some, you know, step up some some security measures. Um, you know, I I to this day have had to take measures to um, kind of keep my address um, from being easily doxed and things like that. Um, I'm very careful about when or if I announce what I'm doing and where. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of public events, and, and I often have to tell people, you know, that this event is happening. But I tend not to advertise it more than like a day or two in advance because That's I don't right. I don't want to give people a lot of time to plan. I mean, it's it's it is what it wow. is. Um, you know, we live in a world that 
has privileged one group of people and, and told them that they have the right to do whatever the hell they want to other people for so long that now that they're having to give up the tiniest smidge of that power, um, they're reacting as if it is a dire threat to their egos, to their yes. their identities. And, um, you know, the vast majority of, of folks are just fine. I don't have any trouble with them. It's just that, that small fringe of mm. terrified people who are in their fear lashing out and flailing. Um, mm. You know, and, and I don't know... Um, you know, it, there's a part of me that even wants to pity them because being that afraid, being that, um, kind of constantly, um, you know, needing to protect every little tiny smidge of, of emotional or, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, um, Ego boo is what it, it, it is the word that's popping into my head, but you know the the need to protect every single little bit of of aggrandizement and every little bit of um, stuff that tells you that you are of value means that you don't have any inherent value in yourself. Um, it means that the only thing that matters to you is your race and your gender, your identity. Mm. You don't have any sense of confidence. You don't have any sense of strength and 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 um, adversity and whatever. And and there's a part of me that cannot help but pity that. I'm a counselor. I know um, what kind of lack of self-esteem leads to that sort of um, state of mind. But at the same time, you know, these people have done a lot of harm. They've done a lot of harm to me. They're doing their absolute damnedest to keep me out of uh, a career path that I chose to pursue. Um, and there's nothing, there's nothing to be said for that degree of evil other than that they cannot be allowed to succeed. So... Um, so that's about where I am with it. So you're just like, I'm just going to keep on winning. So based on that, we're interested in... You know, I don't in... care whether I win awards or not. I'll, <laughs> I, I'll be, I, you know, it's nice that I have. I know. Um, and winning those awards has led to other opportunities. So I'm grateful the the people associated with Worldcon and the, the CIFWA organization that does the Nebula and all of that. I'm grateful that those voters have seen fit to to award me these things. Um, but I would write whether I got paid for it or not. I did get right before I got paid for it. I would write whether I won awards or not. And and that is, that's that's who I am. And you actually created like a Patreon process so that you could write without necessarily getting awards or, or big contracts, didn't you? Yeah. Um, the, the Patreon that I put together... Um, at the time, this was before I had won any Hugos or anything, and my writer mm -hmm. income was very unstable, as writer income tends to be. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but my writing career had blown the hell up already. Um, I wasn't earning, like, bestseller money, but I was doing bestseller work um, and had a number of contracts and appearances and travel that I constantly had to do. And this was all on top of me having a full-time job. And at the time, Mom was ill. So it was too many things. I, you know, I was I was split into too many chunks, and and I was not handling it well. And um, really, something was going to break. Um, my health was already starting to break, and uh, I needed I needed to give up something else. Um, so I did the Patreon, really just intending to get rent money and maybe health insurance money out of it. 
Um, and, uh, you know, this is of course back when health insurance was, was brutal, but not as brutal as it is right now because Obamacare was actually like useful at the time. Anyway. Um, but, uh, so I really just wanted rent and health insurance money out of it. And I did not expect it to go viral the way that it did. I did not expect it to rise to the level that it did. Um, and so at this point I'm making, you know, more than rent and health insurance money. Um, and then shortly after I, I ran the Patreon and was able to quit my day job because of it, um, you know, my writing career kind of blew the hell up and I started making more money from my writing. It's still unstable. And so, you know, I decided to kind of continue the Patreon, but I told people affiliated with the Patreon, look, you know, as long as I'm getting that baseline rent and and (laughs) health insurance, I'm good. So if you want to take your money elsewhere and, you know, help out other artists and authors and so forth, um, you know, I support a bunch of them yeah, myself. Yeah. Um, then, then it's good for you to do that. Um, you know, thank you. I'm grateful, but you know, I'm good. So, <laughs> what's coming? What can we expect from? What can we expect to come next from N.K. Jemison? Um, well, I've actually just finished another novel. I'm I'm doing revisions right now um, on uh, a completely new series. Um, that's actually kind of uh, set in a magical New York. It's it's based on a, a short story of mine that I wrote a few years ago called The City Born Great. And uh, in that short story, the city of New York uh, kind of comes to life and becomes its own entity, but it's got a like a priest or an avatar, I don't know if you want to call it, what, what you want to call him. Um, but there's a, a young boy, well, he's not young boy, he's like teenager slash 20 something. Um, but there's a, a guy who basically represents the spirit of New York. Um, but I decided to um, spin that out into additional books. And uh, it now, um, you know, the, the entity that is New York realizes he's got to have uh, entities that represent the boroughs um, to come out and help him out. And, and they're fighting against um, an anti-city uh, entity that looks a little bit like Cthulhu and effectively runs works through gentrification um, that is trying to destroy the city. <laughs> anyway, wow. I mean, it's, it's meant to be a little bit silly and a little bit bizarre. Well, a lot of bit, lot bit bizarre, but uh, it's one of my first stories, first times writing uh, a whole novel set in the real world. And I've discovered it's actually a lot harder to write in this world because you have to do ridiculous amounts of research and just, oh. Like, I have to go to Staten Island this weekend to explore, and it's just, I don't like Staten Island. But anyway, <laughs> but, I, but I have to make sure I get it right, so anyway. And Kay, you are such a pleasure to talk with, and I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. Thank you so much, NK. You know, thank you. Uh, this was a lot of fun. So. Yeah, and we're just, thank you for getting on. I know you don't do a bunch of podcasts, but we were just like, it's really going to be hard for us to talk about all the apocalypse we want to talk about this year if everyone hasn't read this this work. So. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. 
You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash into the world show. And while you're there, you should also obviously sign up to be a patron for NK so you can get all the stories. Um, another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're an iPhone person, thank you for doing that. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the gorgeous Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.